Hello and welcome to Speak the Words, a Stormlight Archive podcast. I'm Sean. And I'm Mango. And this is a podcast where I am slowly but surely walking us through the story of the Stormlight Archive, starting with book one, The Way of Kings. Uh, someone's going to find their way and, and be a king, maybe. Who knows? Uh, <laughs> I've read all of Sanderson's work, uh, Mango. I've read a few chapters of Mistborn. That's it. Right. That's the dynamic. That's what this is all about. And you haven't read uh, 400 some pages of the Stormlight Archive. But oh boy, have you heard 400 some pages of the <laughs> Stormlight Archive. Um, last week, Mango, what happened? Um, so they've been training the bridgemen, or uh, Kaladin has been training the bridgemen to carry the bridge on its side mm-hmm. so that they can shield themselves from arrows and stuff. And they finally did it on a bridge run. Mm-hmm. But they, uh, it worked for them. They didn't lose anyone. <laughs> but other people saw what they were doing and tried it and ended up, a, a, a lot of people died. So, uh, uh, Kaladin got in trouble and is gonna be, well, he got beaten. And mm-hmm. that's it so far. Yes, he got beat. Um, and then also we did have one Shalon chapter where I don't think quite a lot happened except they talked about religion. And Taravangian got a little bit of characterization. And they kind of talked about Taravangian a bit. They talked about religion and there was some stuff that was not very Mormon of him. And there was some stuff that was very Mormon of him to write. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> All right. So this week we are starting with chapter thirty-three, cymatics, which is a Shalon chapter. And I'll tell you, uh, I cut about half of this chapter out. <laughs> so you love Shalon, but not much happens in her chapters. At least not in this book, and not yet in this book. Uh, so the epigraph begins. It starts with. They changed, even as we fought them, like shadows they were that can transform as the flame dances. Never underestimate them because of what you first see. Purports to be a scrap collected from Talatin, a radiant of the Order of Stonewords. The source, Govlo's incarnate, is generally held as reliable, though this is from a copied fragment of the poem of the Seventh Morning, which has been lost. The important thing to take from that, I would say, is... A Radiant of the Order of Stonewords. I don't know what that means. Yeah, no, you... But, uh... I think this is the first I'm not gonna remember that. that uh, you don't need to... You don't need to remember the specific... But it's the first indication that the Radiants had suborders inside of it. It oh. wasn't just, oh, we're all Night Radiants. It's, this guy was a Radiant, and he was a part of the Order of Stonewords. Stonewards, not words. Stonewards, but yeah. Um, huh. Yes. 
Shalon finds a secluded area in the Palaneum and examines a drawing she made of Yasna using the Soulcaster. She had watched Yasna turn a piece of paper into fire, and she wasn't sure what Yasna had been hiding. Shalon took out her broken Soulcaster and put it on. The more Shalon got to know Yasna, the more guilty she felt for planning to rob her. A light flickering through nearby bookcases startled her, and she tucked away her folio. It turned out to be just an old, wee-robed female ardent, shuffling with a lantern and followed by a parchment servant. She didn't look in Shalon's direction as she turned between two, two rows of shelves, her lantern's light shining out through the spaces between the books. Lit that way, with her figure hidden but the light streaming between the shelves, it looked as if one of the heralds themselves were walking through the stacks. So... Sanderson has talked about this scene. And with that, uh, so far, that is the fourth Herald that you've seen in this book and the first one I can tell you about. Because it's never addressed later on, but that, that person was actually one of the Heralds. What? Yes. One of the Heralds, uh, the fourth one in the book so far. What? <laughs> like like one of the Just, ones from like the very the beginning the prologue yeah. prologue yeah that left their swords behind what <laughs> it has not been touched upon since but that was one of them what <laughs> anyways shalon refocused on her work She'd been sent to find a book, but the book Yasna had been reading was also nearby. Shadows Remembered, full of children's stories about the Voidbringers. Shalon found the book to be pretty much useless and put it away. She returns to her alcove to find Cabsol waiting for her. He'd brought her a bread basket from one of the devotaries and a small jar of jam. Shalon points out that Yasna doesn't like jam, but that she happens, but that she happens to love this type of jam, and that it's kind of weird you've done this a dozen times so far. And they have a dumb, flirty conversation that, like, is half the chapter and I cut out. Pretty much Shalon is like, ooh, I'm falling for this Arden. And Cabsol is like, hey, everybody loves you. You're really talented. And then they talk about how Shalon respects Yasna. And Cabsol is like, I think she's trying to convert you. And Cabsol says a bunch of stuff during the conversation where it's like, hey, that's not stuff an Arden should say. You're pretty bad at this. And he's like, yeah, I have, follow uh, I have trouble following rules. Mm -hmm. he, says that he, has <laughs> he says that he has proof of the Almighty's existence, and he, he shows her this thing called cymatics, which is what the chapter is named after. And pretty much, uh, he puts a bunch of sand on a, uh, on, a, on a plate, like a metal plate, and then he makes it vibrate and plays like a, a musical note over it. Oh, I've seen that before. Yes, but in this, in this, uh, the sand then forms the shape of Kolinar, which is the capital of Alethkar. And he says that that is proof that, uh, that the Almighty exists because this city was forged and the sand can recreate it. And they talk about symmetry and how it's holy, how things are named to be symmetrical, but off by, uh, one letter so that it's not too holy. So, um... Shalon is pretty close. Kaladin is uh, K-A-L-A-D-I-N. It's not that close. They kind of, at the end, they, they, they go off. I'm trying to think of a really good example of um, 
one of the Oh, uh Yasna is a pretty decent one. If it's like J A S N A and then it's an H instead of a J. But they they kind of try to make things look like they're close to being symmetrical, but if it's too symmetrical, then it's too holy. And I'm just going to read from the end of the chapter here. Capsule uh, looked up suddenly, releasing her hand. I hear footsteps. He stood and Shallan turned as Yasna walked into the alcove, followed by a parchment carrying a basket of books. Yasna showed no surprise at the presence of the ardent. I'm sorry, Brightness Yasna, Shallan said, standing. He... You are not a captive child, Yasna interrupted brusquely. You are allowed visitors. Just be careful to check your skin for tooth marks. These types have a habit of dragging their prey out to sea with them. Capsule flushed. He moved to gather up his things. Yasna waved for the parchment to place her books on the table. Can that plate reproduce a cymatic pattern corresponding to Urethiru, priest? Or do you only have patterns for the standard four cities? Capsule looked at her, obviously shocked to realize that she knew exactly what the plate was for. He picked up his book. Urethiru is just a fable. Odd. One would think that your type would be used to believing in fables. His face grew redder. He finished packing his things, then nodded curtly to Shallan and walked hastily from the room. If I may say so, Brightness, Shallan said, that was exceptionally rude of you. I'm prone to such bouts of incivility, Yasna said, but I'm certain he, was, he has heard what I'm like. I simply wanted to make sure he got what he expected. You haven't acted that way toward other Ardents in the Palinaeum. The other Ardents in the Palinaeum haven't been working to turn my word against me. He wasn't... Shallan trailed off. He was simply worried about my soul. Has he asked you to try to steal my soul caster yet? Shallan felt a sudden spike of shock. Her hand went to the safe pouch in her sleeve. Did Yasna know? No, Shallan told herself no. Listen to the question. He didn't. Watch, Yasna said, opening a book. He will eventually. I've experience with his type. She looked at Shallan, and, uh, and her expression softened. He's not interested in you. Not in any of the ways you think. In particular, this isn't about your soul. It's about me. That is somewhat arrogant of you, Shallan said. Don't you think? Only if I'm wrong, child, Yasna said, turning back to her book. And I rarely am. And that's chapter 33. Yeah, uh, Capsul is... He seems to be expressing an interest in Shallan, but, uh... In a manipulative way. Well, Yasna doesn't seem to believe that. It seems to be in a manipulative way, even to me. Looking on yes. from the outside. It seems like he's... Um, it seems like he's trying to, to use her to get to Yasna, but who knows if that's true. We'll find out. Chapter 34, Stormwall. I walked from Abamabar to Urethiru. This quote from the eighth parable of the Way of Kings seems to contradict Varala and Sinbion, who both claimed the city was inaccessible by foot. Perhaps there was a way constructed, or perhaps Nohadon was being metaphorical. Two mentions of Urethiru back to back. And I think it was mentioned at the very beginning, or towards the beginning of the book, when Yasna went, or when uh, Shallan went to that bookstore. I believe it was, I believe they also mentioned Erethiru. Kaladin awoke, hanging upside down by his feet from the Bridge Four barracks. He was facing eastward toward the origin, where all the high storms come from. And he quickly checked his injuries to see if they were fatal, but for now he seemed okay. Sill landed on his chest, attempting to get his attention. And I'm going to read from the book here for a bit. I'm alive, he mumbled, words slurred by his swollen lip. What happened? You were beaten by those soldiers, she said, seeming to grow smaller. 
I've gotten back at them. I made one of them trip three times today. She looked concerned. He found himself smiling. How long could a man hang like this, blood going into his head? There was a lot of yelling, Sil said softly. I think several men were demoted. The soldier, Lamoral, he... What? He was executed, Sil said even more quietly. High Prince Sadius did it himself, the hour the army got back from the plateau. He said something about the ultimate responsibility falling on the Light Eyes. Lemuel kept screaming that you had promised to absolve him and that Gaz should be punished instead. Kaladin smirked ruefully. He shouldn't have had me beaten senseless. Gaz? They left him in his position, I don't know why. Right of responsibility. In a disaster like this, the Light Eyes are supposed to take most of the blame. They like to make a show of obeying old precepts like that when it suits them. Why am I still alive? Something about an example, Sil said, wrapping her translucent arms around herself. Kaladin, I feel cold. You can feel temperature, Kaladin said, coughing. Not usually. I can now. I don't understand it. I, I don't like it. It'll be alright. You shouldn't lie. Sometimes it's alright to lie, Sil. And this is one of those times? He blinked, trying to ignore his wounds, the pressure in his head, trying to clear his mind. He failed on all counts. Yes, he whispered. I think I understand. So, Kaladin said, resting his head back, the peridial knob of his skull resting against the wall. I'm to be judged by the high storm. They'll let the storm kill me. Sil told him she'd be right back and flew off. She returned a few seconds later with Rock, Teft, and Moash. Lordling, Moash said, you awake? I'm conscious, Kaladin quoked, croaked. Everyone get back from the battle all right? All of our men, sure enough, Teft said, scratching at his beard. But we lost the battle. It was a disaster. Over 200 bridgemen dead. Those who survived were only enough to carry 11 bridges. 200 men, Kaladin thought. That's my fault. I protected my own at the cost of others. I was too hasty. Bridgemen aren't supposed to survive. There's something about that. He wouldn't be able to ask Lamoral that man had gotten what he deserved, though. If Kaladin had the ability to choose, such would be the end of all Light Eyes, the king included. We wanted to say something, Rock said. It's from all of the men. Most wouldn't come out. High storm coming and... It's alright, Kaladin whispered. Teft nudged Rock to continue. Well, is this... We will remember you. Bridge four. We won't go back to how we were. Maybe all of us will die, but we'll show the new ones. Fires at night, laughter, living. We'll make a tradition out of it. For you. Rock and Teft knew about the knobweed. They could keep earning extra money to pay for things. You did this for us, Moash put in. We'd have died on that field. Perhaps as many of us died in the other bridge crews. This way, we're only going to lose one. I say it isn't right what they're doing, Teft said with a scowl. We talked about cutting you down. No, Kaladin said. That would only earn you a similar punishment. The three men shared glances. It seemed they'd come to the same conclusion. What did Sadius say? Kaladin asked. About me. That he understood how a bridgeman would want to save his life, Teft said, even at others' expense. He called you a selfish coward, but acted like that was all that you could be expected. He says he's letting the Stormfather judge you, Moash added. Yzerase, King of Heralds. He says that if you deserve to live, you will... He trailed off. He knew as well that, as the others that unprotected men didn't survive high storms, not like this. I want you three to do something for me, Kaladin said, closing his eyes against the blood trickling down his face from his lip, which he'd cracked open by speaking. Anything, Kaladin, Rock said. I want you to go back into the barrack and tell the men to come out after my storm, or after the storm. 
Tell them to look up at me tied here. Tell them I'll open my eyes and look back at them, and they'll know that I survived. The three bridgemen fell silent. Yes, of course, Kaladin, Teft said. We'll do it. Tell them, Kaladin continued, voice firmer, that it won't end here. Tell them I choose not to take my own life, and so there's no way in damnation I'm giving it up to Sadius. Rock smiled one of those broad smiles of his. By the Uli Tekanaki, Kaladin, I almost believe you'll do it. Here, Teft said, handing him something. For luck. Kaladin took the object in a weak, blood-stained hand. It was a sphere, a full sky mark. It was done, the stormlight gone from it. Carry a sphere with you into the storm, the old saying said, and at least you'll have light by which to see. It's all we were able to save from your pouch, Teft said. Gaz and Lamoral got the rest. We complained, but what were we to do? Thank you, Kaladin said. Moash and Rock went back to the barracks, but Teft stayed behind, as if he wanted to stay with Kaladin during the storm. Eventually, he turned and walked inside, calling himself a coward. The door to the barracks shut. Kaladin fingered the smooth glass sphere. The sky was darkening, and not just because the sun was setting. Blackness gathered, the high storm. Sil walked up the side of the wall, then sat down on it, looking at him, tiny face somber. You told them you'd survive. What happens if you don't? Kaladin's head was pounding with his pulse. My mother would cringe if she knew how quickly the other soldiers taught me to gamble. First night in Amaram's army, and they had me playing for spheres. Kaladin, Sil said. Sorry, Kaladin said, rocking his head from side to side. What you said, it reminded me of that night. There's a term in gambling, you see. In for all, they say. It's when you put all your money on one butt. I don't understand. I'm putting it all on the long bet, Kaladin whispered. If I die, then they'll come out, shake their heads, and tell themselves they knew it would happen. But if I live, they'll remember it. And it will give them hope. They might see it as a miracle. Sil was silent for a moment. Do you want to be a miracle? No, Kaladin whispered. But for them, I will be. It was a desperate, foolish hope. The eastern horizon inverted in his sight was growing darker. From this perspective, the storm was like the shadow of some enormous beast lumbering across the ground. He felt the disturbing fuzziness of a person who had been hit too hard on the head. Concussion. That was what it was called. He was having trouble thinking, but he didn't want to fall unconscious. He wanted to stare at the high storm straight on, though it terrified him. He felt the same panic he'd felt looking down into the black chasm back when he'd nearly killed himself. It was the fear of what he could not see, what he could not know. The storm wall approached, the visible curtain of rain and wind at the advent of a high storm. It was a massive wave of water, dirt, and rocks, hundreds of feet high, thousands upon thousands of windspren zipping before it. In battle, he'd been able to fight his way to safety with the skill of his spear, when he'd stepped to the edge of the chasm, there had been a line of retreat. This time, there was nothing. No way to fight or avoid that black beast, that shadow spanning the entirety of the horizon, plunging the world into an early night. The eastern edge of the crater that made the war camp had been worn away, and Bridge Four's barrack was first in its row. There was nothing between him and the plains, nothing between him and the storm. Staring at that raging, blustering, churning wave of wind-pushed water and debris, Kaladin felt as if he were watching the end of the world descend upon him. He took a deep breath, the pain of his ribs forgotten, as the storm wall crossed the lumberyard in a flash and slammed into him. And that's the end of chapter 34. Chapter 35, A Light by Which to See Though many wished Urethi Root to be built in Athala, it was obvious that it could not be, and so it was that we asked for it to be placed westward, in the place nearest to honor, and honor is capitalized with an H. 
Oh, with the H, it's capitalized. Perhaps the oldest surviving original source mentioning the city. We quoted in the Vavi Burar, line 1804, but I wouldn't give for a way to translate the Dawn chant. Those chapters also Kaladin. And the force of the storm wall nearly knocked Kaladin out, but the sheer coldness of it shocked him lucid. He was smashed by the sto- uh, yeah, he was smashed by rocks and branches, then lifted into the air. He flapped in the wind, the only thing keeping him from flying away was the rope tied around his ankles. A gust of wind came from a different direction, sending him crashing into the roof. Sil called for him to grab onto the roof, and he did. He clutched onto, his ro- onto the roof, his fingers slipping as a boulder hit the roof close to him. He stayed like that for a while, the wind blowing him in all different directions as he clung to the building or the rope tied around his ankle. In brief moments of light when he dared to look, he thought he saw Sil standing in front of him, her face to the wind, tiny hands forward, as if she were trying to hold back the storm and split the winds as a stone divided the waters of a, soft, of a swift stream. A gust of wind picked him up and slammed him back to the roof. He hit hard. His vision flashed with sparkling lights that melded together and were followed by blackness. Not unconsciousness, blackness. Kaladin blinked. All was still. The storm was quiet and everything was purely dark. I'm dead, he thought immediately. But why could he feel the wet stone roof beneath him? He shook his head, dripping rainwater down his face. There was no lightning, no wind, no rain. The silence was unnatural. He stumbled to his feet, managing to stand on the gently sloped roof. The stone was slick beneath his toes. He couldn't feel his wounds. The pain just wasn't there. He opened his mouth to call out into the darkness, but hesitated. That silence was not to be broken. The air itself seemed to weigh less as did he. He almost felt as if he could float away. In that darkness, an enormous face appeared just in front of his. A face of blackness, yet faintly traced in the dark. It was wide, the breadth of a massive thunderhead, and extended far to either side, yet it was somehow still visible to Kaladin. Inhuman. Smiling. Kaladin felt a deep chill, a rolling prickle of ice, scurry down his spine and through his entire body. The sphere suddenly burst to life in his hands, flaring with a sapphire glow. It illuminated the stone roof beneath him, making his fist blaze with a blue fire. His shirt was in tatters, his skin lacerated. He looked down at himself, shocked, then looked up at the face. It was gone. There was only the darkness. Lightning flashed and Kaladin's pain returned. He gasped, falling to his knees before the rain and the wind. He slipped down, face hitting the rooftop. What had that been? A vision? A delusion? His strength was fleeing him, his thoughts growing muddled again. The winds weren't as strong now, but the rain was still so cold. Lethargic, confused, nearly overwhelmed by his pain, he brought his hand up to the side and looked at the sphere. It was glowing, smeared with his blood and glowing. He hurt so much and his strength had faded. Closing his eyes, he felt himself enveloped by a second blackness, the blackness of unconsciousness. Huh. And then we cut to Teft's POV. Teft. Rock was the first one out the door when the high storm ended. Teft followed, albeit more slowly. For, for a while, life had been looking up. Not now. Bridgman, Bridgman followed Rock as he led the way to Kaladin. The storming horn eater actually believed. And you don't believe, Teft asked himself, still looking down. If you don't, why are you following? But if you did believe, you'd look. You wouldn't stare at your feet. You'd look up and see. Teft and Rock looked up at the wall of the barracks. 
There he saw what he'd expected and what he'd feared. The corpse looked like a hunk of slaughterhouse meat skinned and bled. Was that a person? Kaladin's skin was sliced in a hundred places, dribbles of blood mixing with rainwater running down the side of the building. The lad's body still hung by the ankles. His shirt had been ripped off, his Bridman trousers were ragged. Ironically, his face was cleaner now than when they'd left him, washed by the storm. Heft had seen enough dead men on the battlefield to know what he was looking at. Poor lad, he thought, shaking his head as the rest of Bridgeford gathered around him. And Rock, quiet, horrified. You almost made me believe in you. Kaladin's eyes snapped open. The gathered Bridgeman gasped, several cursing and falling to the ground, splashing in the pools of rainwater. Kaladin drew in a ragged breath, wheezing, eyes staring forward, intense and unseeing. He, exhale, he exhaled, blowing flecks of bloody spittle out over his lips. His hand hanging below him slipped open. Something dropped to the stones, the sphere Teft had given him. It splashed into a puddle and stopped there. It was done. No stormlight in it. What in the name of Kalek? Teft thought, kneeling. You left a sphere out in the storm and it gathered stormlight. Held in Kaladin's hand, this one should have been fully infused. What had gone wrong? Umalakia, Umalaki... Umalakaiki, Rock bellowed, pointing. Kama Mohore Namavau. He stopped, realizing he was speaking the wrong language. Somebody be helping me get him down. Is still alive. We need ladder and knife. Hurry! The bridgeman scrambled. The soldiers approached, muttering, but they didn't stop the bridgeman. Sadius himself had declared that the Stormfather would choose Kaladin's fate. Everyone knew that meant death. Except. Teft stood up straight, holding the dunce sphere. An empty sphere after a storm, he thought and a man who's still alive when they should be dead. Two impossibilities. Together, they bespoke something that should be even more impossible. Where's that ladder? Tef found himself yelling. Curse you all! Hurry, hurry! We need to get him bandaged. Somebody go fetch that salve he always puts on our wounds. He glanced back at Kaladin, then spoke much more softly. And you'd better survive, son, because I want some answers. And that's the end of the chapter. Wow. Teft seems very interested in the fact that Kaladin went into a storm with a gemstone and came out without it infused. He seems to have an idea of what that means. Hmm. Chapter 36, The Lesson, and this is a Shallan chapter. The epigraph reads, Taking the Dawn Shard, known to bind any creature voidish or mortal, he crawled up the steps crafted for heralds, ten strides tall apiece, toward the grand temple above. From the poem of Ista, I have found no modern explanation for what these dawn shards are. They seem ignored by scholars, though talk of them was obviously prevalent among those recording the early mythologies. Shallan is reading from King Gavilar's journal as Yasna bathed, and I'll read the excerpt from his journal. It was not uncommon for us to meet native peoples while traveling through the unclaimed hills. These ancient lands were once one of the Silver Kingdoms, after all. One must wonder if the great shelled beasts living among them lived among them back then, or if the creatures had, have come to inhabit the wilderness left by humankind's passing. Occasionally, during our explorations, we'd meet with occasionally during our explorations, we'd meet with natives, not Parshmen, Natan people with their pale bluish skin, wide noses, and wool-like white hair. In exchange for gifts of food, they would point us to the hunting grounds of great shells. Then we met the Parshmen. I'd been on a half-dozen expeditions to Natanatan, but never had I seen anything like this. Parshmen? Living on their own? 
All logic, experience, and science declared that to be an impossibility. Parchment needed the hand of civilized peoples to guide them. This has been proven time and time again. Leave one out in the wilderness and it will just sit there, doing nothing, until someone comes along to give it orders. Yet there was a group who could hunt, make weapons, build buildings, and indeed create their own civilization. We soon realized that this single discovery could expand, perhaps overthrow all we understood about our gentle servants. Shalon looks down at the journal, uh, at the uh, journal's undertext. All of the books had undertext, added by the woman writing the book, giving their thoughts on what the man was dictating. Uh, this undertext was written by Yasna, and it reads, It should be noted that I have adapted my father's words by his own instruction to make them more appropriate for recording. That meant she made, dictation, she made his dictation sound more scholarly and impressive. In addition, by most accounts, King Gavilar originally ignored these strange self-sufficient parchment. It was only after explanation by his scholars and scribes that he understood the import of what he'd discovered. This inclusion is not meant to highlight my father's ignorance. He was and is a warrior. His, his attention was not on the anthropological import of our expedition, but upon the hunt that was to be its culmination. I love the idea of the undertext. I love the idea that the Alethi men are like, yeah, yes, I am, I am dictating my work. And just underneath the women are like, he's a fucking moron. <laughs> like, and only the women can read, so only they know that it's being written. <laughs> Wait, oh yeah, because the, the, what is written is written by scribes, not by the men themselves. Yep. Huh. And only women learn how to write, write and read. Uh, men learn how to do glyphs, but not, like, actual written language. And if they do, they have to keep it quiet. Yeah, you don't want to tell people. <laughs> Shalon looked down at the pile of Yasna's clothing where her soul caster laid. Shalon wondered if she could really rob Yasna, but she'd done worse things before. It wouldn't be the first time she'd betrayed someone who trusted her. Shalon tries to act nonchalant and starts a conversation about Gavilar's treaty with the Parshendi. Why did your father want to make a treaty with the Parshendi? Shalon found herself asking as she walked. Why wouldn't he want to? That's not an answer. Of course it is. It's just not the one that tells you anything. It would help brightness if you would give me a useful answer. Then ask a useful question. Shalon set her jaw. What did the Parshendi have that King Gavilar wanted? Yasna smiled, closing her eyes again closer, but you can probably guess the answer to that. Shards. Yasna nodded, still relaxed in the water. The text doesn't mention them, Shalon said. My father didn't speak of them, Yasna said, but from things, we sa from things he said, well, I now suspect that they motivated the treaty. Can you be sure he knew, though? Maybe he just wanted the gem hearts. Perhaps, Yasna said. The Parshendi seemed amused at our interest in the gemstones woven into their beards. She smiled. You should have seen our shock when we discovered where they'd gotten them. When the, Lancer, when the Lancerin died off during the scouring of Amia, we thought we'd seen the last gem hearts of large size. Yet here was another great-shelled beast with them, living in a land not too distant from Kolinar itself. Anyway, the Parshendi were willing to share them with us, so long as they could still hunt them too. To them, if you took the trouble to hunt the Chasm Fiends, their gem hearts were yours. I doubt a treaty would have been needed for that. And yet, just before leaving to return to Alethkar, my father suddenly began talking fervently of the need for an agreement. Huh. I just realized something. Yasna was there. 
Okay, that's interesting. I really, really okay. Huh? Okay, I didn't realize I didn't realize Yasna had been there when Gavilar met the Parshendi. Huh. Um, but she's talking right now like she was. Okay. All right. Interesting. So what happened? What changed? Shalon asked. I can't be certain. However, he once described the strange actions of a Parshendi warrior during a chasm fiend hunt. Instead of reaching for his spear when the Great Shell appeared, this man held his hand to the side in a very suspicious way. Only my father saw it. I suspected he believed the man planned to summon a blade. The Parshendi realized what he was doing and stopped himself. My father didn't speak of it further, and I assume he didn't want the world's eyes on the Shattered Plains any more than they already were. Shallan tapped her book. It seems tenuous. If he was sure about the blades, he must have seen more. I suspect, I suspect so as well, but I studied the treaty carefully after his death. The clauses for favored trade status and mutual border crossing could very well have been a step toward folding the Parshendi into Alethkar as a nation. It certainly would have prevented the Parshendi from trading their shards to other kingdoms without coming to us first. Perhaps that was all he wanted to do. Why kill him? Shallan said, arms crossed, strolling in the direction of Yasna's folded clothing. Did the Parshendi realize that he intended to have their shard blades and so struck at him preemptively? Uncertain, Yasna said, and Shallan is like, hey, the way Yasna says it, Shallan feels like she's, she knows more and isn't saying it. Shallan looked at Yasna's soulcaster and tried to will herself to make the swap. She still didn't know how to use the Fabriel. She considered looking for a book in the Palaneum or asking Capsule. You are progressing more quickly than I had assumed you would, Yasna said suddenly. Shallan spun, but Yasna's eyes were still closed. I was wrong to judge you so harshly because of your prior education. I myself have often said that passion outperforms upbringing. You have the determination and the capacity to become a respected scholar, Shallan. I realize that the answer seems slow in coming, but continue your research. You will have them eventually. Shallan felt sick. She couldn't do it. Yasna noted that Shallan looked penned up and anxious. She suggested they do a more hands-on lesson in philosophy. Shallan tries to get a single answer on philosophy from Yasna, who tells her that that's not how it works. There is no single answer. She says it's time for a field exercise outside of the Palaneum. Shallan says that it's too late to go out, but Yasna just tells her to follow. We cut to a little later, and Yasna and Shallan are walking the streets of Carboranth at night. Shallan is very nervous about being out alone without protection this late. Yasna says that part of maturing is asking questions, and that one of the reasons she disliked the Voran religion's organization is she thinks it seeks to stop people from asking questions. Yasna pulls back the glove covering her soul caster, lighting up the street around them and revealing the gemstones. Shallan asks if it's wise to be flashing her wealth on the street like that, and Yasna says it isn't. She says this street has earned a reputation as multiple times in the last three months, Thedugoas have been robbed and murdered on their way home on this street. King Taravangian has asked the city guard to deal with it, but they were doing nothing. Yasna asks how foolish it would be for the two of them in their fancy clothing to go into a dark alley. Shallan is like, yeah, that would be a dumb idea. And Yasna's like, all right, let's go into the dark alley. As they walked down the alley, Shallan saw dark figures forming around them. Yasna stopped moving. The frail light of her cloaked soulcaster reflected off metal in the hands of their stalkers, swords or knives. These men meant murder. You didn't rob women like Shallan and Yasna, women with powerful connections, then leave them alive as witnesses. Men like these were not the gentleman bandits of romantic stories. They lived each day knowing that if they were caught, they would be hanged. Paralyzed by fear, Shallan couldn't even scream. Stormfather, Stormfather, Stormfather. And now, Yasna said, voice harm and grim, the lesson. She whipped off her glove. 
The sudden light was nearly blinding. Shallan raised a hand against it, stumbling back against the alleyway. There were four men around them, not the men from the tavern entrance, but others, men she hadn't noticed watching them. She could see the knives now, and she could see the murder in their eyes. Her scream finally broke free. The men grunted at the glare, but shoved their way forward. A thick-chested man with a dark beard came up to Yasna, weapon raised. She calmly reached her hand out, fingers splayed, and pressed it against his chest as he swung a knife. Shallan's breath caught in her throat. Shallan, uh, yeah, Shallan. Yasna's hand sank into the man's skin, and he froze. A second later, he burned. No, he became fire, transformed into flames in an eye blink. Rising around Yasna's hand, they formed the outline of a man with head thrown back and mouth open. For just a moment, the blaze of man's death outshone Yasna's gemstones. Shallan's scream trailed off. The, figures of, the figure of flames was strangely beautiful. It was gone in a moment, the fire dissipating into the night air, leaving an orange afterimage in Shallan's eyes. The other three men began to curse, scrambling away, tripping over one another in their panic. One fell. Yasna turned casually, brushing his shoulder with her fingers as he struggled to his knees. He became Crystal, a figure of pure, flawless quartz, his clothing transformed along with him. The diamond in Yasna's soulcaster faded, but there was still plenty of stormlight left to send rainbow sparkles through the transformed corpse. The other two men fled in opposite directions. Yasna took a deep breath, closing her eyes, lifting her hand above her head. Shallan held her safe hand to her breast, stunned, confused, terrified. Stormlight shot from Yasna's hand like twin bolts of lightning, symmetrical. One struck each of the footpads and they popped, puffing into smoke. Their empty clothing dropped to the ground. With a sharp snap, the smokestone crystal on Yasna's soulcaster cracked, its light vanishing, leaving her with just the diamond and the ruby. The remains of the two footpads rose into the air, small billows of greasy vapor. Yasna opened her eyes, looking eerily calm. She tugged her glove back on, using her safe hand to hold it against her stomach and sliding her finger, her freehand fingers in. Then she calmly walked back the way they had come. She left the, the crystal corpse kneeling with hand upraised, frozen forever. Shallan pried herself off the wall and hastened after Yasna, sickened and amazed. Ardents were forbidden to use their soul casters on people. They rarely even used them in front of others. And how had Yasna struck down two men at a distance? From everything Shallan had read, what little there was to find, soul casting required physical contact. So Yasna just murked those four fucks. They deserve it. They do. They did. Uh, but turned one of them to fire, turned one of them to crystal, and turned two of them to smoke. Yasna called for a palanquin, and the two women began their trip back to the conclave. That was horrible, Shallan finally said, hand still held, held to her breath. It was one, her breast. It was one of the most awful things I've ne ever experienced. You killed four men. Four men who were planning to beat, rob, kill us. You tempted them into coming for us. Did I force them to commit any crimes? You showed off your gemstones. Can a woman not walk with her possessions down the street of a city? At night? Shallan asked. Through a rough area displaying wealth? You all but ask for what happened. Does that make it right? Yasna said, leaning forward. Do you condone what the men were planning to do? Of course not, but that doesn't make what you did right either. And yet those men are off the street. I know what Sanderson's doing. Thanks, Sanderson. I appreciate it. Man. Would you like to comment? Uh, no, keep going. 
Okay. And yet those men are off the street. The people of this city are that much safer. The issue that Taravangian has been so worried about has been solved, and no more theatergoers will fall to those thugs. How many lives did I just save? I know how many you just took, Shalon said, and through the power of something that should be holy. Philosophy and action, an important lesson for you. You did all this just to prove a point, Shalon said. You did this to prove to me that you could? Damnation, Yasna, how could you do something like that? Yasna didn't reply. Shalon stared at the woman, searching for emotion in those expressionless eyes. Stormfather, did I ever really know this woman? Who is she, really? Yasna leaned back, watching the city pass. I did not do this just to prove a point, child. I have been feeling for some time that I took advantage of His Majesty's hospitality. He doesn't realize how much trouble he could face for allying himself with me. Besides, men like those, there was something in her voice, an edge Shalon had never heard before. What was done to you? Shalon wondered with horror. And who did it? Regardless, Yasna continued, tonight's actions came about because I chose this path, not because of anything I felt you needed to see. However, the opportunity also presented a chance for instruction, for questions. Am I a monster or am I a hero? Did I just slaughter four men or did I stop four murderers from walking the streets? Does one deserve to have evil done to her by consequence of putting herself where evil can reach her? Did I have a right to defend myself? Or was I just looking for an excuse to end lives? I don't know, Shalon whispered. You will spend the next week researching it and thinking on it. If you wish to be a scholar, a true scholar who changes the world, then you will need to face questions like this. There will be times when you must make decisions that churn your stomach, Shalon Devar. I'll have you ready to make those decisions. This scene is, um, is the first time that I was like, oh, I really like Yasna. <laughs> I, I really like this character. <laughs> <laughs> she fucking killed the shit out of those four dudes yeah i i think that was i was waiting for you to finish before i said anything yes. but i think that might have been commentary on the whole like well you shouldn't go out wearing uh oh i'm sure skimpy yeah. outfits if you don't want to get raped it's like uh people shouldn't rape people in the first place regardless of yeah what they're wearing so I yeah I I definitely thanks think that's Anderson what that is. you're great yes yes the two women entered the conclave and walked to Yasna's rooms Shalon helped her undress and ready for bed you could have let the other three get away Shalon said walking back toward Yasna who had sat down to brush her hair you only needed to kill one of them no I didn't Yasna said why they would have been too frightened to do something like that again you don't know that I sincerely wanted those men gone. A careless barmaid walking home the wrong way cannot protect herself, but I can and I will. You have no authority to do so, not in someone else's city. True, Yasna said. Another point to consider, I suppose. She raised the brush to her hair, pointedly turning away from Shalon. She closed her eyes as if to shut Shalon out. The soulcaster sat on the dressing table beside Yasna's earrings. Shalon gritted her teeth, holding the soft silken robe. Yasna sat in her white underdress, brushing her hair. There will be times when you must make decisions that churn your stomach, Shalon Devar. I've already faced- I've faced them already. I'm facing one now. How dare Yasna do this? How dare she make Shalon a part of it? How dare she use something beautiful and holy as a device for destruction? Yasna didn't deserve to own the Soulcaster. With a, with a swift move of her hand, Shalon tucked the folded robe under her safe arm, then shoved her hand into her safe pouch and popped out the intact smokestone from her father's Soulcaster. She stepped up to the dressing table and, using the motion of placing the robe onto the table as a cover, 
made the exchange. She slid the working soulcaster into her safe hand within its sleeve, stepping back as Yasna opened her eyes and glanced at the robe, which now sat innocently beside the non-functional soulcaster. Shalon's breath caught in her throat. Yasna closed her eyes again, handing the brush toward Shalon. Fifty strokes tonight, Shalon. It had been a fatiguing day. Shalon moved by rote, brushing her mistress's hair while clutching the stolen soulcaster in her hidden safe hand, panicked that Yasna would notice the swap at any moment. She didn't. Not when she put on a robe, not when she tucked the broken soulcaster away in her jewelry case and locked it with a key she wore around her neck as she slept. Shalon walked from the room stunned in turmoil, exhausted, sickened, confused, but undiscovered. And that is the end of the chapter, and with that, Shalon has accomplished one of her uh, objectives. Mm-hmm. She's stolen the Soulcaster. Um, we will do one more chapter, but I do have to send this image to you first. It's another page from uh, Shalon's sketchbook in her journal. Shalebark? Yeah, Shalebark. That slug has, like... Uh, <laughs> it has, like, a like, seashell-shaped yeah. shell. And then Kremlings. And there are Kremlings, the little uh, crab insects on the bottom. Mm-hmm. Or crabs, interesting. But they um, made, like, a fence out of the... Um, shell... Or... Bark. Out of the out of the, bark. Out of the, the shell yeah, bark. They did. Interesting. Uh, chapter thirty-seven sides. Um, this Kaladin symbol five and a half years ago. Uh, the chapter starts with Tian and Cal helping Hasina make dinner. Hasina talks a lot about how they're a spren and everything. Um, Cal sneaks away to his father, who is preparing to go meet with the city lord was shown and asks to go with him. I'm going to skip most of this chapter as well. It pretty much boils down to uh, Rashon trying to squeeze Cal's family until they have no choice but to give back the spheres, and is continually accusing Liren of having stolen them. Cal is sent away when he has an outburst, and he has to go talk to Rashon's son, Relier, and Laurel, who's the daughter of the old city lord. And they get into a spat when Relier treats Cal like a kitchen servant, but Laurel gets the other boy to leave Cal alone. Liren finishes his conversation with Rashon and collects Cal so they can leave, and I'm going to read the end of the chapter here. I want to be a surgeon, Cal said suddenly. His father's face, hidden in shadow, was unreadable, but when he spoke he sounded confused. I know that, son. No, I want to be a surgeon. I don't want to run away to join the war. Silence in the darkness. You were considering that? Liren asked. Yes, Cal admitted. It was childish, but I've decided for myself that I want to learn surgery instead. Why? What made you change? I need to know how they think, Cal said, nodding back toward the mansion. They're trained to speak their sentences in knots, and I have to be able to face them and talk back at them, not fold like... He hesitated. Like I did, Liren asked with a sigh. Cal bit his lip but had to ask. How many spheres did you agree to give him? While I still have enough to go to Carbranth? I didn't give him a thing. Rashon and I talked for a, wa- a time, arguing over amounts. I pretended to grow hot-headed and left. Pretended, Cal asked, confused. He has to think that I'm willing to bend. Today's meeting was about giving the appearance of desperation. A strong front at first, followed by frustration, letting him think that he'd gotten to me. Finally a retreat. 
He'll invite me again in a few months after letting me sweat. But you won't bend then either, Cal whispered. No. Giving him any of the spheres would make him greedy for the rest. These lands don't produce as they used to, and Rashon is nearly broke from losing political battles. I still don't know which High Lord was behind sending him here to torment us, though I wish I had him for a few moments in a dark room. The ferocity with which Liren had said that shocked Cal. It was the closest he'd ever heard his father come to threatening real violence. But why go through this in the first place, Cal whispered. You said that we can keep resisting him. Mother thinks so too. We won't eat well, but we won't starve. His father didn't reply, though he looked troubled. You need to make him think that we're capitulating, Cal said, or that we're close to doing so, so that he'll stop looking for ways to undermine us? So that he'll focus his attention on making a deal and not... Cal froze. He saw something unfamiliar in his father's eyes. Something like guilt. Suddenly, it made sense. Cold, terrible sense. Storm father, Cal whispered. You did steal the spheres, didn't you? His father remained silent, riding in the old carriage, shadowed in black. That's why you've been so tense and wistio died, Cal whispered. The drinking, the worrying, you're a thief! We're a family of thieves! The carriage turned, and the violet light of Salas illuminated Liren's face. He didn't look half so ominous from that angle. In fact, he looked fragile. He clasped his hands before him, eyes reflecting moonlight. Wistio was not lucid during the final days, Cal, he whispered. I knew that, with his death, we would lose the promise of a union. Laurel had not reached her day of majority, and the new city lord wouldn't let a dark eyes take her inheritance through marriage. So you robbed him? Cal felt himself shrinking. I made certain that promises were kept. I had to do something. I couldn't trust to the generosity of the new city lord, wisely as you can see. All this time, Cal had assumed that Rashon was per persecuting them out of malice and spite, but it turned out he was justified. I can't believe it. Does it change so much? Liren whispered. His face looked haunted in the dim light. What is different now? Everything! And yet nothing. Rashon still wants those spheres and we still deserve them. Wistio, if he'd been fully lucid, would have given us those spheres, I'm certain. But he didn't. No. Things were the same yet different. One step and the world flipped upside down. The villain became the hero, the hero the villain. I, Cal said, I can't decide if what you did was incredibly brave or incredibly wrong. Liren sighed. I know how you feel. He sat back. Please, don't tell Tien what we've done. What we've done. Hesina had helped him. When you're older, you'll understand. Maybe, Cal said, shaking his head. But one thing hasn't changed. I want to go to Carbranth. Even on stolen spheres? I'll find a way to pay them back. Not to Rashon, to Laurel. She'll be a Rashon before too long, Liren said. We, shouldn't expect an, we should expect an engagement between here and her and Relier before the year is out. Rashon will not let her slip away, not now that he's lost political favor in Kolinar. She represents one of the few chances his son has for an alliance with a good house. Cal felt his stomach turn at the mention of Laurel. I have to learn. Perhaps I can... Can what, he thought. Come back and convince her to leave Relier for me? Ridiculous. He looked up suddenly at his father, who had bowed his head, looked, looking sorrowful. He was a hero. A villain, too, but a hero to his family. I won't tell Tien, Cal whispered and I'm going to use the spheres to travel to Carbranth and study. His father looked up. I want, to learn to I want to learn to face light eyes like you do. Any of them can make a fool of me. I want to learn to talk like them, think like them. I want you to learn so that you can help people, son, not so you can get back at the light eyes. I think I can do both, if I learn to be clever enough. Liren snorted. You're plenty clever, son. You've got enough of your mother in you to talk circles around the light eyes. The university will show you how, Cal. 
I want to start going by my full name, he replied, surprising himself. Kaladin. It was a man's name. He always disliked He'd always disliked how it sounded like the name of Light-Eyes. Now it seemed to fit. He wasn't a dark-eyed farmer, but he wasn't a light-eyed lord, either. Something in between. Cal had been a child who'd wanted to join the army because it was what other boys dreamed of. Kaladin would be a man who learned surgery and all the ways of the Light-Eyes, and someday he would return to this town and prove Rashon, Relier, and Laurel himself that they had been wrong to dismiss him. Very well, Liren said. Kaladin. And that's the end of the chapter. So, they did uh, They did steal the spheres. Yeah. Yeah, I got that. How do you feel about that? Uh, not great. <laughs> he thinks Wistia would have given them to him anyways. So? Yeah, it's, it's not... It's still not great. Um... That's where we'll stop for today. Uh, oh boy, uh, we've got through a lot, um, specifically with uh, Yasna fucking murdering the hell out of those people and uh, Kaladin surviving the high storm. Yeah. Next week is going to be slow. I can't even really think of a good thing to tease you with, to be honest. Um. We will find out a little bit more about Teft. I can say that. Because he knows what the Kaladin absorbing the stormlight means? Yeah, he seems to know that that means something. Yeah, next week is going to be a little slow, but then it should be two episodes after that for the rest of part three. And I think those will be filled with some stuff. Um... Shalon now has to run away, right? Shalon has the soulcaster, so she has, to, she has to. I mean, she get, doesn't know how to use it. Yeah, but she has to get out of there before. Uh, yeah. Yasna finds out. Yeah, if I'm remembering the rest of this book right, I think next week would be the last slow week. I feel like. Pretty much after that, every week we'll have at least something that's pretty big. Okay. Yeah, that's all I've got. Uh, Mango, where can people find you online? You can find me on Twitch at Mango Asteroid. Where can people find you, Sean? You guys can follow me on Twitter at Sean underscore AFK. Everything that I do is in my bio. Uh, you guys can follow this show on Twitter at Speak Stormlight. Uh, you guys can find the show on Anchor at anchor.fm slash speak the words. That's where we host the podcast. Uh, you can send us voice messages through that. You guys can send us emails at speak the words asp at gmail.com. And uh, the cover art was done by at my, uh, is at my name. That is for a different show. Uh, I, I started to plug the person who did the artwork for Into the Grid. Um, but the person that did the artwork for this show is at Tyler Tylerims, who is a good friend of ours. Um, as always, guys, thanks for listening. Uh, we'll see you guys next week. But for now, don't forget, life before death, strength before weakness, journey before destination. <laughs>